Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Integrated Health Podcast. We are delighted to have uh, with us today Angela Keeley, as usual. Hey, guys. Great to be back. And Liam at the boards back there. And, uh, and we also have a very special guest today, um, Dr. Kimberly Young, who is a licensed psychologist and an internationally known expert on internet addiction. She founded the Center for Internet Addiction in 1995 and is a professor at the St. Bonaventure University, publishing numerous articles and books, including Caught in the Net, Tangled in the Web, Breaking Free of the Web, and Internet Addiction, a Handbook and Guide for the Evaluation and Treatment. She is a nationally known expert. She's been published in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, the London Times. In other words, we're very, very lucky to have her on the show today and thrilled to talk to you. Dr. Young, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So um, I would imagine if anybody's similar to, to the host of this program, uh, there's both excitement and wonderment in talking to you and fear because in some ways, many of us feel like we're addicted to the internet. I'm thinking to myself, how much time do I spend on the internet? How often am I doing this? Is Am I doing it too much? Am I too dependent? What is internet addiction? And could you, can you talk a little bit about that just to for starters, what people need to know? Well, yeah, when I started studying internet addiction, it was in 1995, and um, what was happening it was a friend of mine's husband was addicted to AOL chat rooms at the time, and he was spending like 40, 50, 60 hours a week at a time when it was still $2.95 an hour even to log in, so he was creating financial problems, but then their marriage ended in divorce when he met women in online chat rooms. So what I did to start my study was to look at the same criteria that one would use to define pathological gambling as the only other listed criteria um, in the DSM um, for uh, an impulse control disorder and an addiction that didn't involve an intoxicant. So what you're looking at with internet addiction parallels any other type of impulse control disorder, and you're looking at things like a loss of control. Uh, excessive use, an inability to control use, um, things that cause a consequence because of the behavior, whether it's in your marriage, uh, children are uh, having problems in school because they're distracted by the internet uh, and overuse of that, and um, you know, or people that experience a type of withdrawal, like if they're forced to go without it, they physically might you know, go into a depression or become quite irritable or very anxious without it. So. Um, collectively, we're talking about things that are very similar to other addictions, but now we're really looking at technology and screen use. Dr. Young, Angelo here. I'm wondering, you know, working with young adults and seeing people that are struggling with uh, internet or uh, substance abuse or eating disorders, you know, with substances, there's, uh, there's kind of a division people will make between, oh, this person um, really struggles with this disorder or in the past they would say it was an addict. Um, as an alcoholic, or this person just has, you know, substance abuse problems. How do you, how does one know for themselves or, you know, looking towards, looking at their family and friends, you know, the difference between, oh, I may be using the internet a little bit too much. Uh, it's feeling like it's compulsive versus it's, it's, it's really a problem and I need to get help. Well, again, I think you've, you've kind of answered some of the question because with any addiction, there's always a consequence. And so you're really looking at, um, you know, I think there's a big continuum between, say, productive use of the Internet 
and um, destructive or compulsive use of the internet. And so, you know, if you're just using it as a tool and you're making airline reservations or travel plans or research for school, that's one thing. If you're, you know, playing games or looking at porn and it's causing a uh, disruption into your work or family life, then then you're really looking at it more as a harmful type of behavior. What if I'm going to Facebook to self-soothe? Well, I'm not sure that in and of itself is a problem. I mean, that's not actually clinically what we see. It's usually a broader picture of um, it's somebody that might use Facebook, but social media in and of itself generally tends not to be as addictive as the games, the multi-user role-playing games. That's probably clinically what we see the most, but then that person is really suffering from a lot of, say, social anxieties, so now they're using social media excessively because they don't make other real life relationships, whether it's through the gaming or the media uh, forms of it. They're really, it's, it's a more long term kind of process problem that they're having, not just kind of momentarily saying, Hey, I posted a picture on Facebook and how many likes did I get? That might be a component of it, but in, a, in and of itself, that's probably not uh, as needing treatment, if you will, just more self-regulation. So are you seeing mostly gaming and porn when people come into treatment? Yes. And, and gambling as well online. Okay. Makes sense. Um, and out of curiosity, when somebody, the, when somebody comes into treatment, you know, they're hospitalized for this, they're, they're spending time. What, what, walk me through a little bit, like what works? Is it um, cognitive behavioral therapy, psychotherapy? Um, do you guys apply 12 step? Like what is the modality that you work with in order to help treat these people? I use um, what I call CBTIA, which is cognitive behavioral therapy for internet addiction. So, um, you know, I've published a couple of papers on this um, and some with outcome studies. And what, what it basically is, is your standard cognitive behavioral therapy, but it takes a, a different approach or a very structured approach. And the first phase of it is really looking at the behavior. I mean, where are you accessing screens? How many screens do you have? Um, what are the specific activities? People keep a base, uh, a log, a daily log to get a baseline of their actual behavior. I mean, is this just 24-7 any kind of tablet or device, or is it something very specific that they're using? Where are they using it? What are the kind of consequences of their use if there's a problem in terms of school? And so it's really behavioral management. Then the second phase of this is really looking also at the cognitions and the things that people tend to distort with addictions. Well, it's not that harmful. I can't get addicted to a machine. Um, you know, you're really kind of digging deeper at what the rationalizations or the denial that somebody might have that they could get addicted and, you know, justify their use. And then finally, in the third phase, you're looking at harm reduction and trying to find the other underlying reasons. Most people with a, an addiction problem in general have a dual diagnosis, you know, depression, anxiety, something like that. And so you're also kind of addressing those issues in the, in the phase of this. So you're trying to change the behavior. You're trying to, you know, look at the cognitions and restructure those so that people can hopefully not justify all that use, but moderate their use. And that's the big thing, too, in terms of the outcomes, they're a little harder to measure than, say, addictions to alcohol or drugs because abstinence is generally 
what you're trying to achieve in outcomes. Here you're trying to look at it more like an eating disorder and it's more moderated and healthy use of the internet. And for each person that can vary quite frankly uh, in terms of what their specific goals are. Is an initial set period of abstinence ever helpful? Um, you know, we go through a detox at the beginning and I, you know, sometimes it's 72 hours or so just to sort of see what it feels like to be without the technology. So, and then to kind of do a more of a restart into it. Um, when I, when I do a lot of training, we talk a great deal about, um, abstinence and how it, it even a little bit could be very helpful for somebody to sort of, you know, reboot and, um, kind of re-examine re their own behavior and their feelings associated with the technology. Any recommendations that you have for people? I'm, I'm, many of our listeners have children, and a lot of people express to me concerns with their children. How much screen is too much? Boundaries, et cetera, et cetera. Any general guidelines that you offer people in that area? I do. I actually, from my site at netaddiction.com, you can download um, what I call the the three six nine twelve parenting guidelines and you know it goes at each developmental age what parents should be doing and intervening for a child because I think you know when you say children you know it's very different when you're talking about a three-year-old versus a 12-year-old a in terms of their level of independence with the technology what they should be exposed to so I think you know going along the developmental lines like for example from infancy to three I really don't believe any technology should be used by a child because I think they really, that's a very fragile time when they should be learning more language skills, they should be learning how to read a book, they should be playing with physical toys, developing their motor skills. I think those are very important. But you know, as they then get a little older in the next sort of developmental age, maybe they can be exposed for an hour a day. And then when they, you know, till six years old, but again, very supervised, very closely watched. I mean, the game should not become a substitute for attention and uh, interaction with parenting. I mean, what I often see, unfortunately, is too many parents just letting their kids play, you know, a lot of uh, mobile devices just because they're quiet and it's more of like a babysitter. And I don't think it should be that. No, that makes a lot of sense. Are there pre uh, preventative measures um, for developing screen addiction or is it one of those things kind of like a substance use disorder that gosh once you sort of get exposed to this some people end up developing that and some people don't well i think um you know where i see the prevention is certainly educating parents that they should not just give kids technology without having rules and, and regulations around it i think that's the biggest thing i've seen is and it's because we're told it's good for us is all this technology. But on the other hand, then a parent, you know, with a seven-year-old all of a sudden can't get them off the technology and it's become a real problem in the house. So it, the earlier they can try and do structured use of technology and alternative, I mean, um, like alternatives, I mean, in terms of tech-free time at home. I mean, what what I worry about are parents that model this unhealthy behavior for their children, and then they say, well, you can't use it, but I can because I need my phone for work. But in general, I think the whole family needs to look at how they spend their, their free time and, and make it more tech-free because then they do learn to talk to each other and spend more quality time together. And I think that's, that's something that's missing. I also think about um, teachers and what they need to look at in terms of um, early identification of signs of addiction-type problems with young children and the technology in the classroom. 
So I have a really specific personal question about this. I have young children and um, only one of them is old enough that I allowed to, you know, he doesn't use the internet or play games, but he's allowed to watch like some short videos. And I've observed in that, that after he spends time with the media, um, that he seems more emotionally volatile, like particularly even more than like if he has sugar, you know, like, and I, there have been concerned like, Oh, you know, certain types of like foods or things like that, that can create situations where he feels more emotionally volatile. And I, I just wonder, is that an early sign? Is that something that's normal? Um, is that, um, What's going on in the brain? Like, I'm, I'm just interested to hear more and, and wonder for other, you know, people with small children in a world that's becoming more and more filled with tablets and devices, you know, is that well, it's interesting, you know, because that's one thing that newer research is starting to find is that, um, you know, children become more emotionally disrupted after, uh, you know, whatever exposure to technology it is. And, um, I guess, you know, in a lot of the newer research, that's that's why they're saying avoid technology and don't let children use it. And, and, and also monitor um, a significant amount of what they're actually looking at. Um, you know, when you talk about the computer, I mean, are they are they playing educational games? Um, you know, a lot of times with these games, even there's chat features and children are talking to strangers. I mean, you know, you wouldn't think of having a 40-year-old man talk to your young child, but if they're playing a game, a lot of them are interactive and anybody's hiding behind the chat features that are embedded in a lot of these mobile apps and games. So that could be very disruptive to children too. Um, you know, I think I think the best thing is to, to, to really take it away and, and not let them have it. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm more of an absolute person because I don't think you can just do it a little. I've not seen that to be productive uh, because then what happens is the children have tantrums when you try to take it away. But you also want to be clear about what they're actually doing on the, with the technology for, for an X period of time. You want to make sure that they keep it in the public area of the house. And so um, because I think there are a lot of emotional problems that can develop with overexposure, but also without knowing maybe who children are actually engaged with or talking to. So at what age uh, is it appropriate to introduce technology if you're, if you're basically saying, you know, abstinence? At, at well, again, using the 36912 guidelines, um, you know, generally then you're looking at maybe by age three or four, they can, they can share a little bit with the technology. Um, but I think the, the, the hardest part is that what you're starting to see are, are school systems that are putting this technology. I mean, you know, in kindergarten or school, they might have iPads all. So, you know, it's, you know, you're not trying to villainize it, but you're. Tr what I'm saying is, you need to actually get involved in what they're actually doing with the computers. Are they educational kind of tools that they're using? Are there recreational things that could be harmful potentially? And and that's it. So it's not just an exposure thing. It's also like, well, what are they actually doing? Um, you know, with with the technology. How did you get involved in this work? How did you become an expert in this? What drove you to the work? Well, again, it was um, my friend that had a husband who was addicted to the AOL chat room. So this was going back uh, even around 92, 93. I remember reading about the information superhighway was coming. Uh, you know, I had worked in, in the computer field as well as in the psych field. And um, so I had an interest in computers and I could see things happening uh, in the field that was changing. But then, uh, you know, my friend called me up and said, look, this is becoming a real problem with my husband. And suddenly I realized, wow, this this has become 
so significant financially. I mean, 60 hours a week he was spending at 295 an hour, but then their marriage did end divorce. And then I started to, to look at this more seriously when I posted a survey online taking the same clinical criteria for compulsive gambling, substituting the word internet, and then all of a sudden the reaction I had. I mean, literally, I had like 40-some email the next morning. Went back, I might have had only two. I mean, we weren't using email back in 94, 95 uh, like we are today. And so it was, it was very different, and I, I was struck, quite frankly, by how many people were having this very problem. And how have you seen it uh, develop over the last 20 years? Well, again, that was before mobile technology. And I think what happened for me um, and what I've observed is that, look, 20 years ago, there was definitely an online and an offline life. Now we're all just on. And I think that's dangerous. I think, um, you know, you can get into um, where, like I said, the, the question is now not how much is too much, but how young is too young. And that's where the research kind of is guided. I mean, back then people were studying adults because those are the people that were using them maybe in work or even college students. But now, you know, like I said, you have very young uh, children and they're they're getting involved in, in technology at much younger ages and it becomes more of a problem. And going into the future, what do you see as being challenges that will come up? I mean, I'm curious about you know, virtual reality and artificial intelligence and how maybe people will become more lost in that? Like, do you see those as particular challenges or, or are there other challenges you see? Yeah, I think, you know, I get asked about the virtual reality and I guess on one hand it's entertainment. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I haven't seen cases where people are so addicted to it that, that they lose track of their own real life. On the other hand, it could, anything's possible. Um, I think with newer technologies, certainly with artificial intelligence, the biggest thing, I, I, I don't see that being, again, addictive in and of itself. I see it replacing jobs and being more of an economic uh, transformation for us, kind of like how there used to be the switchboard operator and now we have you know, voice message systems. And, and so there's certainly jobs that can be replaced by these kind of new you know, technology advances. But the, the reality is I, I think addiction – um, you know, is still going to be to the more, um, you know, the gaming, um, you know, in particular, these, these role-playing games are highly intense and they're very creative functioning. I mean, people live in these persistent environments. So they, anything that allows somebody to create that kind of alternate reality in their, in their psychology, in their mind, um, tends to be the much more addictive process. What's going on in people's brains with this? Is there any research that uh, may, like there's a similarity between other addictions or substance use disorders, et cetera, that, that parallel in terms of when you're engaging in an activity, what's going on in the brain? Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, the biggest area of research right now is the, um, with neuroimaging and a lot of functional MRIs finding that, uh, in particular with gamers, um, Gamers versus non-gamers show like high levels of uh, activity in terms of their prefrontal cortex, um, the area of the brain that focuses on planning and judgment and impulse control. So that makes sense. Um, you know, they've done some studies also showing uh, dopamine and the neurotransmitter that is associated with other addictions is also something that's triggered more with those that fall into addictive patterns with technology than those that are not. And so I think you are starting to look at, um, 
you know, an increasing number of studies that show that there's a biological basis for this behavior too. What does recovery look like when someone has, uh, you know, gone through this, they had an addictive situation with technology, now they're using uh, technology in their job or, or moderately or whatever. What does addictive addiction look like? And the second part of that question is, are there support groups? Are there growing amounts of support groups uh, for this, uh, for people to connect with like post-treatment and, and things like that? Yeah, I mean, when somebody comes in for treatment, you know, oftentimes, I mean, at least in my case, they've seen a number of other doctors and they um, nobody seems to know how to treat internet addiction. And so, or they recognize it um, as kind of a phase and not really a, a problem. So what happens is that oftentimes they, they really do want help in the sense that, um, you know, they, they, when you when you come to a specialist at all, you're usually seeing, you know, those that are more motivated because they're coming to you after going to other doctors, but they're also somebody that actually is also, um, you know, maybe a tougher case too. They have a lot of underlying issues. They have a dual diagnosis, but see often what's happening in our, in the United States as compared to other countries, we will lag behind recognizing internet addiction as a disorder. It's not in the DSM. Insurance won't reimburse it. So to date, it's it's sort of a small little group of people that, that know how to treat it, that even understand that it exists in terms of the mental health uh, practitioners. So in comparison, Korea or China, uh, Taiwan, parts of Europe have quite a number of internet addiction recovery centers and units and hospitals. So the problem is that the healthcare system doesn't reimburse for something like this. So, you know, you can't code it. And that becomes a problem then because then only those that can afford treatment usually seek that out. And then what you also have is a compounding issue with the mental health field. Just in general, we don't recognize it in the United States. So um, it really then becomes something that people aren't being trained or there's no standard of care. Like, for example, I developed um, a, a training package. You know, I call it Restore Recovery. And it goes through how to apply treatment. And it's training for individual practitioners. And um, But what happens is many people just you know, don't go through any training because there's not actually a certification involved with this as there are, might be for other types of addictive um, disorders. And just to plug for you, uh, we went through that Restore Recovery and, and really appreciate it. It's an excellent uh, program. So just highly recommend that for um, for other programs or groups that are looking for training and support or individual practitioners. Um, just want to give you a plug for that, Dr. Young. I Thank you. Uh, yeah. Uh, a related question. How often do you see dual diagnosis? How often is internet addiction uh, coupled with some type of substance abuse or eating disorder or other types of um, behavioral struggles? Yeah, I, I see it often. You know, I would say a good 50% of my, my caseload would be something where there's somebody that has, a, they're addicted to, you know, marijuana and they look at porn, you know, or they are addicted to, to marijuana and look at games. Um, it sort of adds to the experience. I mean, it plays off each other too, because sometimes somebody's sitting alone, and they're you know maybe they're drinking and they're they're gaming, and they get you know more into the game the more they drink, and and because they're they're uninhibited, uh, or same with the you know porn or any kind of like webcam sex and things that people get involved with using technology. And the the biggest thing I've seen to make a point 
is that yes, sex addiction or even gambling addiction exists offline as well. These were what I call traditional addictions that now though become accentuated through the internet. I mean, what you're really getting at is people that are, um, you know, that might not have had say a sex addiction problem, but now from the convenience and privacy of their home, they can go online and engage in behavior that they normally wouldn't engage in. That's, that's really interesting to see how they've actually, these, some of these disorders have, have become more, it's really a, the same disorder that's just become more complicated or complex through the addition of the internet. Yes. In terms of resources, you already mentioned netaddiction.com, which is your website, which I know is an excellent resource. Are there any other resources available to um, really to people of all ages? Um, you know, if you're an older adult or you have children, you know, what what's the best place to look for help or support if you're just well, kind of wondering? I always say at least try to find an addiction specialist, you know, um, that somebody that is understands or at least is open to the idea of internet addiction because oftentimes what happens is that they might go to a psychologist who doesn't specialize in in say any kind of addictive disorders and that's really what is the problem but the person is diagnosing this say child is a depressive or a you know a, an anxiety sufferer without looking at the big picture of what the the problem is with the the internet too that it's at least compounding it and so that's the biggest complaint and the biggest concern that, that I see is that most um, practitioners just dismiss it. So it makes it more of a burden almost on the patient to really ask questions and say, hey, look, do you recognize this? Do you understand that Internet addiction exists? Are you able to treat it? What exposure or experience have you had? Because there aren't a lot of resources oftentimes of knowledgeable experts in people's area, but at least if they start by going to a good addiction specialist, hopefully that person has at least been familiar with the concepts of Internet addiction. While it's still not recognized, um, hopefully they've, they've at least heard about this and um, can try to learn more to, to then better help the patient. Excellent. Well, uh, Dr. Young, I know your time is very, very valuable and you've been quite generous with us and we so appreciate that. Any parting shots or anything we're leaving out that uh, questions we should have asked that you can think of? Not really. I thought you were very thorough and um, really covered a lot of things in terms of what this looks like and, and where people can try to find help. And what's, what's most inspiring is that there's hope. You know, I think what you've expressed is that there's hope. If there are people who are really struggling with this, that there's ways to get help with this. And, uh, you know, it's probably more normal than we think for people to struggle with something like this. And, uh, and removing the stigma from it will help people get, get access to that help. And so we so appreciate your time. And thank you very much for coming on the program. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Okay, take good care. Thank you, everybody, for tuning into the Integrated Health Podcast. We appreciate you listening. I want to say thanks to Liam for, for patching Dr. Young in today. We actually did this by phone for the first time ever. Hopefully it came through okay. Um, and we'll check in with you next time.